How important is theory in understanding and making sense of the world around us? How do we use cognitive diversity to enhance learning in organizations? What is this new term psychological confidence? How is it different from psychological safety? And why do we even need a new term now? Why not simply say confidence? And what is learning? And what does it even mean in an organizational context where we are trying to navigate and manage so many different goals? There can't be a more interesting discussion. So informative and yet so to the ground. Welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nepin. My guest today is Arvind Pipilidi, a very dear friend who lives in Alabama with his lovely wife, Krista. I'm actually hoping she will be able to join me someday on this podcast. But here's a few things about Ivan. Ivan has a master's in human factors and system safety, a PhD in social sciences. He's a certificated flight instructor and a certified accident investigator. Ivan is an adjunct professor at the University of Alabama and someone I believe applies his experience and research to bettering operations in complex systems and high-risk environment, including wildlife, firefighting, aviation, military, and medicine. Ivan is a highly sought-after international consultant and an organizational coach who focuses on topics related to human factors, organizational culture, real-time risk perspectives, learning from events, organizational dialogue, development of high-leverage learning products, and the connection between resilience and high-reliability organizing. There's not many people with such a diverse background as Ayman. He's, he's been a mine geologist, exploration geophysicist, U.S. Coast Guard pilot for rescue and law enforcement missions. He's also served in the U.S. Air, Gu Air Guard and Air Force res Reserves, where he flew the C-130 Hercules, and he's also served on active military operations for combat and humanitarian support in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Central Africa. Ivan, it's such an honor to have you, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. One thing that strikes me, Nippin, is the way both of us came into safety, right? So I like to refer to the way you and I came into safety as having come into safety honestly. And what I mean by that is that we were both operators beforehand, and that gives us a perspective that not everybody can enjoy in the safety arena. I mean, there's a lot of people who are professors and, and, and they espouse things in terms of their research, but we have that empirical piece behind us too, which really helps us to frame questions very differently and to understand problems, immediately understand problems with the context that surrounds them. And I think that that's super important. We often forget um, when we look at an incident, an accident, or even normal work, we often forget about the context. And the context is really the most important piece. And I think we know that just intuitively and experientially because of what we've done in, in the industry. And until you've had it out there, man, until you've had your neck on the line and you've been in that position where your livelihood depends on the decisions and actions that you take in the workplace, until that happens, it's really hard to walk 
in somebody else's shoes. It's so interesting you say that because I had a professor when I was doing my PhD and she once said, she said, um, uh, I can understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. And I said, no, you don't. Uh, she said, no, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, to understand me, you have to paint yourself brown and then walk around in Cardiff and see what it means. Because you have no idea what, what my reality is, uh, no matter how hard you try. So we can, when it comes to action investigations, you're absolutely right. You know, we can reconstruct reality, but we can never be sure that that was the reality. Reality exactly. is so different from our reconstruction. And yes, you're right. But you know what? Also, uh, this is a wonderful conversation, actually, because I was talking to Steve Shorrock uh, just last week about this. And you ignited my brain now, which is a, never a good thing. But anyway, so uh, she, he said the same thing. That does this theory help you understand things or does it blind you? Because what we have seen in the last, I mean, I've seen in my own personal experience is how uh, academics and researchers, people with, with extensive expertise in a particular sector, get blinded to, to things. And in the pursuit of, of proving their theory, they are missing some really important nuances. And why would you do that is a question because falsification actually makes a theory. But it's, I think it's hard because on the one hand, you would like somebody to falsify your theory, but thinking about how the theory becomes your identity, you know, whether it's, it's psychological safety or it's, it's safety too, or it's, it's new view or it's HRO, if that's how people see you and that's how they associate with you, then I think you have a problem. You have a good identity crisis there. I, I think it goes a bit deeper. I, I think that everybody makes a contribution to the, the fabric of safety. And I think that we should look at it as a fabric. We shouldn't look at it as a, a linear progression. It is probably fabric is two dimensional and that's not enough either, but let's give it Let's give it the, the go around the idea of fabric. The research provides different threads and different colors and different nuances. And we should look at those as being the opportunity to bring cognitive diversity together. And, and so when I think about, when I think about the work of Amy Edmondson and I think about the work of, of Carl Wyke and I think about Reuben McDaniel and I think about uh, Edgar Schein, I think about uh, David Woods and Sidney Decker, what I think about is how they all work together to create that fabric. And I think that is really what we're talking about. And in fact, if we make the fabric robust enough, if we wanna to, want to use a metaphor, we could say we could create a fabric that is strong enough to repel the, the worst bullet, right? It's like Kevlar. It's like our vest, if we think about it that way. And in that way, what we do is we embrace the work of all of these people. And we understand that no single thread in that fabric is going to give it all the strength that it needs, but all the threads together, that's what really gives us the robustness that we need in, in a system of safety. So I think very strongly about the academic contribution. In fact, one of the things that we, we included in the learning review process was the ability to bring academics in. And what we found was when we did that, when we had a serious accident, we did our best to try and understand that accident. And we brought somebody in from the outside with that academic background. They were able to ask a different suite of questions that got us thinking differently. And I think that that's important. So if nothing else, they offer that, um, that moment to reflect, that question, are we really making sense, right? 
And I think that that's a, a really great quality of all the academics that, that we've enjoyed enjoyed in our process. Does that make sense? It does, but you know what you're what you're saying now is is very much uh, 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 and the way I visualize it is is a bag of theories and concepts and tools, and you go out with an open mind. You 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 try and engage with the data. You see, you try to you allow the data for to speak for itself, and then you see what theories, what concepts, what tools can be used in this particular setting to make sense of the situation, rather than starting off with a theoretical frame framework and then seeing how to superimpose that theory on the data. So I think this is this is what I'm I'm, I'm you know, and and very often what you see is that uh, to explain that messy reality, you would often need a combination of concepts, not just one concept or theory to. To, to, to understand it better. Absolutely, and I think you hit the nail on the head. If, if we allow theory to drive the process, that introduces a different type of bias than we're used to. If, on the other hand, we allow the data to drive the process and we give the power to the stories, not the single story, but the stories of the people who are involved, then what we do is we capture something that is much richer in terms of the context. And I mean, think about it this way: if if two people hold the same the same perspective of an of an of an event, that's powerful. But if two people hold a different perspective of the event, then we have a rich suite of questions we can begin to ask. Like, did they recognize that they had different perceptions at the time? Did they have a mechanism of communicating the difference in perceptions? Was their psychological confidence enough to take that action to actually speak truth to power in that moment? For example. These are the kinds of things that we begin to ask questions about, and then we can fold the theory in, then we can fold the research in afterwards. So if it does become a communications issue, we can look at somebody who's a specialist in communications. If it's, a, if it's an issue about speaking truth to power, we can start thinking about that in the research that's been done in that area. If it's cultural, well, my go-to guy will always be Edgar Schein. He's just, just phenomenal. And he's helped out with a number of our cultural questions. And again, bringing him in gave us the, the opportunity to see through a different lens. And, and that's super important, that ability to look at the problem or the situation, because not all situations are problems, but the ability to look at, them, look at the situation through different lenses provides us with different perspectives, and then that gives us different learning opportunities. So I see a lot of strength in bringing them to bear, bringing the, the experts to bear, if you will. Absolutely. Did I hear the word psychological confidence here? Do you we want to did. expand on that? <laughs> well, we've been struggling with safety as a term. Um, my my co-researcher, which is my wife and my brilliant uh, my brilliant co-professor in the program at UAB, we've been struggling with language. And one of the big words that we struggle with constantly is safety, because safety has been nominalized. It's kind of been all the power has been taken out of it. So when I hear psychological safety, I see something in that. I, I see some, some value in it. <clears throat> but really what we're talking about in the workplace is the confidence to be able to speak up. And that's cultural in its background. That's uh, regulatory to some degree in its background. It's also established by leadership in terms of what leadership will tolerate and the kinds of questions that leadership asks. So when we start to think about what we're really talking about there is that confidence. So we've actually shifted the phrase to psychological confidence. And 
and it's starting to be a little sticky. And I've got to give credit where credit's due. This actually comes from one of our one of our clients. Um, Simon Bone brought this up with us, and he said psychological confidence makes a great deal more sense. So we're actually copying it from him, but it is a wonderful term, and and we are really embracing it and looking at it now in a bunch of different contexts, including medical. Uh, we're looking at it um, in firefighting. We're looking at it as well in a couple of other industries, manufacturing industries, and talking about psychological confidence actually res re resonates better with the workforce than, than psychological safety does. Sometimes well, that's interesting. And knowing you, decisions you make, uh, uh, very, very beautifully thought through. Uh, I'm intrigued to ask you, first of all, isn't confidence in itself a psychological thing? Because, you know, in, in Hindi, we use the word Atma Vishwas, which is confidence in your own self, which is confidence. You know, I was looking at the dictionary just a couple of days ago. Confidence is psychological. It cannot be collective. But then the other thing I wanted to ask you was that maybe just expand on this term to say, why did you choose to use the word confidence? And then let's see where the discussion goes. Well, I think I think it's early on for us in our exploration of the word. And part of our our modus operandi, if you will, is to try different words in the industries that we deal with to see what actually resonates with the people in that industry. Uh, psychological safety has some stickiness. I mean, it's there. It, it's not going to go away and it shouldn't go away. It's It's been kind of like the work of Jens Rasmussen leads to a bunch of different thoughts from David Woods to James Reason. This is also a, a launching point for us to say, okay, now we've got psychological safety. What can we do with it? When we take it and apply it, what can we do with it? Well, we we have had success with the term psychological safety. I say that we haven't, we have. But what I'm finding is that we're having more success with the idea of psychological confidence. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty much what you just said. It is psychological in its background. And it resonates with people because it's something that they can think about. So when we think about what we have control over in systems, often we really don't have control over safety, but we do have more control over confidence. And we have the ability to say, when I want somebody to be confident in a situation, I can do things to create that confidence as a leader in the organization, for example, I can do things to create that confidence. But if I want people to be safe, it's much harder to say, hey, these are tangible things I can do to make people safe. And generally, sadly, what we degrade to in safety are more rules, regulations, policies, and procedures, more barriers, more defenses in depth. But when we're talking about confidence, we're literally talking about the opposite of that. We're talking about removing barriers, opening up dialogue, opening up the ability to speak truth to power. So. Telling somebody that they can do it is not enough. Telling somebody to say, to, to telling them to speak up is not enough. But creating an, an atmosphere wherein that speaking up activity is something they're confident to do. That's something that both, that both the leader and the follower can do. That's something that's tangible for them. That's what we're finding anyway. Yeah, no, that's interesting because the the way I have always visualized the idea of psychological safety is that it's it's more, uh, it's more like a space. It's more like a space where where you can express yourself, and you can also be sure that somebody on the other end will listen to it and will listen to you with an open 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 heart. 
So that's the other side of the psychological safety to have you know, this ability to have deep listening, which, by the way, is a, is a, such an interesting area for me, at least. So, so to me, that space where you can express yourself, but for the other person to actually listen to you intently is, is how I see psychological safety. But trying to visualize, but the moment you take it into the domain of, of confidence, you make it more like, more like an individualist uh, and a very, very personalized thing. Uh, which you know, and I'm just trying trying to think that how is it different from saying that um, uh, from using one of those synonyms of human error as we call them, uh, situational awareness and and all those dispositions. Uh, how is it that different from the the psychological say, uh, confidence? I'm just trying to understand it from your perspective. Okay, so I, th I think that you're onto something there. You could take it very easily to a place of individual behavior. But what I'm thinking about is more the system that creates the confidence. So as we start to think about that, that I, I look at these things as leadership responsibilities, not managerial responsibilities. When we try and manage things, we have a tendency to, to do it through those controls that we apply to the system. But when we think about leadership, we think about leadership as more inspirational. The words that I use around this very frequently when I'm talking with people is you can, you can push people to do things or you can pull them toward certain behaviors. And the pulling toward is much more important. So pulling them toward confidence, pulling them toward speaking truth to powers, pulling them toward this space that we've all talked about so often. I mean, you've heard me say it a thousand times that, that information is the currency of safety. If we really believe that, then what we should be doing is creating the space, as you said, for that to happen. And I think that the idea of confidence is not really individual, but it's more collective in creating an atmosphere where the entire system has confidence. And, and that really requires something else, right? It requires a lot on the part of the leader. Um, the leader has to be humble, and that's, that's huge. And in order for the leader to be humble, the leader has to be confident. So when I look at reactions that, we, that, that stifle information, those reactions generally come from a place of, of fear, or they come from a place of uncertainty and discomfort with uncertainty. Well, in, in simple and complicated worlds, like if we ever lived in a simple or complicated world, those things, the idea of having certainty is something that's attainable. But in a complex work environment, which all of ours are complex work environments, the idea of having certainty is an illusion. And when leaders recognize that what they're looking for is elusive, in fact, it may not even be possible to attain, that full prediction is not possible, and therefore full control is not possible, it can do one of two things. It can move them to a place of fear, fear of the system, fear of their interactions with the system, or it can actually enlighten them. It can open them to a place of, of assurance that now what they need is a collective approach, this idea of cognitive diversity, bringing more people to bear. And this is where I think... Early work in teaming, uh, thoughts about cognitive diversity that are put forth by a lot of different people in the industry really combine together to illustrate what you and I have ex been experienced, what we've experienced in operations.
I mean, flying a crew-served airplane or captaining a boat that has numbers, a number of people on it requires a type of leadership that is relational, that does create that confidence in the crew to be able to speak truth to power. And if it isn't created, we see a lot of vulnerabilities in the system. But in order to do that, what do we have to be as the captain or the, or the aircraft commander? We have to be open. We have to demonstrate that openness. We have to ask questions that are, that are genuine inquiry, really genuinely inquiring to get people's opinions. And in many cases, we've got to do it in time-compressed situations, which means that if we're not in relationship, if people really have to think, if I say this, I'm going to get in trouble, then we're not going to get the information we need to increase the safety of that system. And so these are the experiences that come through. And, and I think that they're really well represented in a lot of the research that's out there in teaming, a lot of what Simon Sinek says, a lot of what Amy Edmondson says, a lot of what Scott Page says. All of these things come together in, in illustrating different aspects. But I don't think, as you said, I don't think we can pull on one and say, this is the answer. Many. You start to Indeed. fabric again. Yeah. But Ivan, also uh, looking at it as uh, as um, uh, as a, an Asian man who has been living all his life in, in the Western world, or all his working life in the Western world, I also feel that there is, is another element to it, which is you know how um, humility is perceived sometimes. Uh, and you know, you may be a very confident person in your in in your own setting in your own world, and that confidence, that humility, is sometimes perceived as as being docile. Uh, and 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 meek, uh, and I wonder what what you have to say about that because uh, I worked for almost eleven years of my career at sea, working with with Europeans, working with with other nationalities, and I can I can tell you how many times I was told that you come across as somebody who's very who's very docile, who's very who's very scared to open up, when in fact I was not. It, it's so inside me i knew or there were instances at least when i knew that i i, I was uh, i i had everything that i took it took to 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 you know pick up the phone and call the captain but you know this 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 idea of of confidence also has to be explored in a more international uh, or more uh, multi ethnic context uh, um, uh, any thoughts on that well, the ethnicity of it is an interesting question so when we look at when we look at people who are are junior firefighters and when they come into the firefighting theater they have a certain docility to them they have a, an approach that is docile if they're female it's even more docile they're less apt to provide input right and i've got a number of really great stories about this not the least of which was a story that was told by a person who took my job actually when I left the Forest Service. She's, she's absolutely brilliant. She tells her story about how she came into the Forest Service and how she had to put away her femininity until she had the credibility with the crew as a firefighter. And then, then and only then could she allow her femininity to come out. So these things are issues. And, and I maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive than, than a lot of others to it because I'm Native American by birth. My dad was Native American, my mom was German. and. Uh, when I start to think about it, I think about the way different ethnicities engage and the way they are marginalized 
in society, and there are certain expectations. This goes back to yet another problem, though. This, this problem is, is one of bias, right? And bias enters into everything. Um, so when we think about a situation, let's think about it in a couple of different ways. Let's look at the perspective of in the moment, let's look pre and then let's look post. In the moment, when bias exists, a lot of people will be marginalized. Post-incident, we've got the opportunity to talk about that. We've got the opportunity to voice, hey, why didn't you listen to this individual when they, when they put something forward? Was it because you perceived them to be meek? Was it because you prejudged them because of their ethnicity, that they were going to deliver meekness? That's something we can learn from. And then pre, every pre is a post, every post is a pre. So we've got to take that post event learning and factor it into our upstream learning and say, look, maybe the thing that you're going to be looking for from this individual is communication in a very different way. So mechanically, we can intervene. And the Coast Guard actually did this. At one point, I was an aircraft commander, a newly minted aircraft commander, and they gathered us all together. And they said, you're going to hear your crews say something. And when they say this to you, you've got to pay attention. And, he, and the, the guy who was giving us this talk, who was part of our standardization and evaluation group, said, you're going to hear them say, I'm not comfortable with this. And that's a signal. And when you hear that signal, you need to listen. So they provided language that immediately had a meaning for the sender and a meaning for the receiver. And they, they didn't leave that to chance. They told you what the meaning of that phrase was going to be. And they, they said to you, our expectation is that that will prepare you to start to take information. Now that's a really interesting mechanical intervention and it worked, which is fascinating. It really did work. So when we start to think about the types of interventions that we can apply, I think we need to be just as diverse as the, as the landscape that we're working in. So the mechanical works. What about the social? What kind of social applications are there? Well, you've seen some of those social applications in, in terms of, um, in terms of um, the way we relate to people can be wide and varied. You know, like you said to your professor, paint yourself brown and walk around for a little while and see how different it feels, right? That's, that's huge. Um, but it still is never going to give that person a full sense of what it is to be you. So what do we have to do socially to begin to understand that dynamic? What's required of us? And these are questions that are unique in, the, in terms of how they're going to be answered. They're unique to the type of organizations that we're dealing with. They're unique to the type of products that we're producing. They're also unique to the dynamics of the situation. But I think I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to say this. I think that a lot of the reactions that are adverse reactions, whether it's toward minorities, whether it's toward women, whether it's toward any type of ethnicity, are again rooted in uncertainty and fear. And so when we start to think about that, we can't really fight that with regulation. That's not something that's fightable in terms of regulating a response. However, we can start to think about our principles of operation. We can start to think about what the important aspects of interactions are and the values that are brought by diversity. Now, when I say this, we started diversity initiatives in the Forest Service years ago, and they were not met very well. We had a bunch of dissent decrees were consent decrees rather where people were brought in because they met a certain demographic 
but they didn't necessarily meet the standards of others in that particular field. But they met the demographic and the minimum standards, so they were brought in. Some were really successful. Some were not successful. And, and it's a, it's a tr tremendous burden, really, to be brought in in that way. And um, actually, the, the person that I talked about earlier, Sarah, she talks about this as well. When you're brought in, you have a, a higher bar set for yourself as a minority being brought in under one of these decrees or under some sort of diversity hire. So wouldn't it really make more sense if we educated people in the system about cognitive diversity? And then again, pull people toward this diverse land with an understanding that everybody offers certain strengths and everybody also offers certain weaknesses. And I'll, I'll kind of illustrate it the way Sarah did in her, in her webinar. She talks about the perfect firefighter. He's six foot two inches tall. He's broad shouldered and chiseled, chinned, and he's white in complexion, tan once he's on the fire line, of course, but he's strong and he's able to wield a chainsaw with a single hand. That's a firefighter. Well, yeah, if all you're looking at is production and all you're looking at is brawn, that's a firefighter. But if what you want is somebody who's thinking through the system, that's not the person you necessarily want. The, per the thinking firefighter may be the meek one, the one who waits on the outside and looks and observes and offers different perspectives on that situation. But the only way to bring that across is to show the importance of that cognitive diversity and then allow the filling of positions to occur based on the diverse needs of the organization. But that's a cultural shift. That takes quite a bit of work. Well, there is so much in what you said, and, and I, I love the, the, the contrast that you said between uh, regulation and awareness, uh, the, the very top-down and very bottoms-up approach to, 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 to making people aware. But, you know, um, uh, it, it brings back so many memories and, and so many uh, structural problems from the, from the world of shipping, where you have, uh, where you have this problem of, of of uh, um, people, uh, you know, very, very being very ethnocentric, very ethnocentric views of 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 uh, 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 people who are from non-traditional maritime backgrounds. So let's let's say Filipinos and Vietnamese and, and Burmese and Indians, and you would often hear things like uh, when an accident happens, oh, um, the Pakistani or the Indian chief officer, did, the Norwegian captain, he wasn't being assertive. So, and this is exactly where I'm coming from. You know, when you talk about confidence, it's very easy to put that ethnocentric lens onto your onto your onto your eyes, and and judge people from 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 that perspective. And that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so here's an industry that has, and and the interesting bit is that here's an industry that employs people from from the third world, from non-traditional maritime countries sets a ceiling for them that they will either be, be, be serve as ratings, which is the lowest rank people on the ships, or they will progress only up to junior officers, or they will be the people who will be most exposed to hazards and risks, and then goes on to, to, to analyze accidents and find, oh, goodness, why is it that we are seeing more accidents? There's a, there's a pattern here, and the pattern clearly tells us that these are the kind of people who, have, who, show more, who are more accident prone. And, and the reason for that is because they're not confident enough. So I find it very interesting, actually, to to have. So there is very little 
self-awareness there in terms of what is it that we are looking for? What questions are we asking? And how, how, how are we asking those questions? And is there a sense of, as you very rightly said, cognitive diversity in that space? So I, I think, again, I'm going to go back to this idea that it's the, the responsibility of the power authority in the system to cultivate an environment wherein people can be confident. It's not the responsibility of the person to be confident. It's the responsibility of the leadership of the powerful person to say, I want this diversity and I want to pull people into this conversation. What that means is a lot of different things and a lot of different leadership programs look at this. How do we create a situation where a leader can truly be a leader and not a follower or a leader can truly be a leader and not a manager? You can't manage these dynamics. You can only lead these dynamics. So part of it is asking important questions that are, are real questions. So not questions you already know the answer to right? But genuine questions. So uh, uh, entering into the, the entire dynamic and humble inquiry is, as Edgar Schein refers to it. And this, again, means that it's not, it, it is, I, you know, I don't like the word failure, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. It's a leadership failure if someone feels as though they don't have the confidence. It's not an individual failure. And and if we start to use metrics in the system, which we all love to try and do, then the metrics that we should employ are, do we have the confidence inside the organization and has leadership created it? And what have they done to create it? Create it? And what have we done to create leaders? This is the other thing is, we can't put somebody into a position where the expectation is that they're gonna know the answers and then expect them to be creative leaders that inspire others to give information. We've already told them they're the knowers. So that, and that's a problem that's endemic in a bunch of different organizations. Um, I saw it in the Coast Guard, I saw it in the Forest Service. I see it in, in a lot of the organizations that I deal with. I mean, if we look at medicine, for example, and how we create doctors in medicine and the expectations that we place on those doctors and, and the hype that we put around it, that the doctors are the all-knowing, the doctors are the ones that have the answers, the doctors are the ones that provide the answers to the, to the staff. Well, what that does is that creates a tremendous amount of vulnerability in our system, because now the entire expectation of how we're going to deal with a complex problem falls on the shoulders of one individual. How are they gonna to react to that? Well, some react really well. Some react with their own level of confidence in their abilities and inabilities and an understanding of the art of medicine and they employ the the others that are around them they enjoin the team to contribute to the to the solution to complex problems others move to a fear place they move to an insular place they move to a place of greater control and greater control means less sharing of information and so again back to the currency of safety is information. If we're going to increase the safety of a system, we have to increase the flow of information. And we have to critically look at anything that disrupts that flow of information. And so when we create doctors the way we create them, when we develop people the way we develop them in different work environments, and we tell them that they are the knowers, we're setting ourselves up for failure. 
we're creating a more brittle system when we want a more resilient system. That's kind so of the way it, I feel about that. So in a way, what you're saying is uh, the this excessive or excess dependence on an individual's expertise or, or, or expert knowledge can make the system very brittle. Is 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 what you're saying? No, I, I no. The, the no. knowledge piece is important, right? So we, we have to think of knowledge in a couple of different ways. One way that we think about knowledge is what to do and what not to do in certain circumstances. And as long as the system is delivering the expected, following the rules of what to do and what not to do work. But when the system delivers the unexpected, we have to move to a very different form of, of thinking, deciding, and acting. <clears throat> it's the difference between... Um, Mastering something and becoming a having the artistry, right? And so when we think about mastering the basic information, we can do the basics, we can handle, anybody can handle the ship, anybody can handle medicine, anybody can handle the airplane as long as everything is going right. But it's when we get that disruption in the system, when we get that um, uh, incongruity, that's when we need, that's when leadership really needs to emerge. And that's where this confidence piece has to already exist. So if people in normal, every day-to-day -day operations don't have confidence, they're not gonna have confidence when things are anomalous. They're not gonna have confidence when we really need them to, to, bring, to be brought into the system. So what we need to do is cultivate this in our leadership training, cultivate this concept, broach it in dialogue, move it into dialogues and day-to-day -day work Give people the sense of approachability if you're a leader in an organization and, and then back that up when they do give you information, don't shut them down. I mean, my first operational flight in the Coast Guard is a travesty. I took off in a Falcon jet as a co-pilot and the oil pressure in one of the engines drops off to zero. So I reach over and I said, do you want me to shut the engine down? And the aircraft commander says, don't you tell me what to do. And I was like, what? excuse me, did I get this wrong? I mean, I just went through the, the training on this airplane and that's what they told me to do. So I reached around for the flight manual that was behind me and I opened it up to the emergency procedures section because I thought I had something wrong. And he says, and don't start quoting to me from that book either. Now, this is a learning opportunity. It could be viewed as a learning opportunity. He could have said, we're not gonna shut it down until we see secondary indications. Sometimes it's just the gauge. So we're gonna look at oil temperature to see if oil temperature increases corresponding to the oil pressure decrease. If that happens, we'll shut it down. He could have done that. He could have said, take a look at what the book has to say. Don't read it to me right now because I've got a lot going on, but take a look at what the book has to, be, has to say and be ready for what we might need to do. He could have said something like that, but instead, he lacked the confidence himself in that situation to be vulnerable. And so this goes to a lot of thinking about vulnerability and the strength of vulnerability. You said meek. I don't like the word meek, right? But I do like the word vulnerability because vulnerability, it's, it's one of those really wonderful words that is supercharged in terms of the, the strength that somebody has to have in order to be vulnerable. And, um, I, I took even, you remember the, the classic firefighter as described by Sarah, right? I've taken those guys and put them in front of Brene Brown's talk on vulnerability. And all of a sudden, listening to Brene Brown talk about vulnerability, they start to see something different in themselves.
So I think what we need to do is we need to explore these different interventions. The interventions come at a social level. It is a cultural transformation that we're asking for often, especially in these high risk industries that have often been male dominated and have been really, really infused with a huge dose of testosterone and a very, very pale color. Let's be honest, right? If we're going to look at this and we're going to say we're not going to do the club anymore, the boys club anymore, if we're going to do something else, it's a cultural shift that requires dialogue around exposing what the vulnerabilities are in maintaining this position. Because right now, this position that they have is their position of safety. They feel safe in the boys club mode. They know who they can trust. They know who they can go to. They've created a, a subculture within a culture. But what they don't understand is because we have so many diverse people in the workforce that that's no longer tenable. That boys club thing isn't going to work. Forming the British square and firing in four directions at once, that's not going to work, right? Because resources are limited, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but but uh, such brilliant points you make, and I, I don't know where to even start, but one of the things, uh, and you know, I use the word meek and docile because that is how, that is exactly the terms we use in shipping. We haven't come to terms with the term vulnerability yet. It's too, too much, too much to, of a change to do. But, but I remember once and, 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 and entering into a Chinese port and I was in the forward deck with the chief officer. And this was my second or third month on board the ship. And I you know, was very curious seeing lights all around the place, like boys lit up. And I just asked, started asking the chief officer that that light is lit. What does that mean? That boy is flashing. What does that mean? And he was half asleep, just trying to catch up on his sleep because, you know, he probably had a poor, bad night the day before. And he said to me, would you stop asking me all these questions and go back and open up a book and see what this means? And maybe, and by the way, you know, that's the way to learn. Don't come and ask me each and everything. I don't know how I perceived it. Maybe it was not the way, it was not bad. It was not the way it intended. It. He didn't intend to say that. But I switched off from that day for the next 15 months of my career at sea. And how much more if you would have given me an answer and, or maybe at least asked a question. He just shut me up and that was the end of it. I didn't ask any more questions from anyone because I perceived that I was being a pain by asking a question. So, so this is this is this is what it does to you, you know that it reinforces this this whole thing uh, through one bad experience. Um, I also uh, you wanted to say something on this? Did I am well, I stopping? You kind of triggered something in me, and, and and that that is that this cultural change isn't one way; it's two ways, right? So we can't simply expect to change the the power holders in the system and their approach. We've also got to change the other side. So for example, when, when you told me your story, I immediately thought of my father, who was my, my adopted father's Greek, all right? And you know what Greeks are like? I'll sum it up in, in a simple way that my mother used to say. My mother used to say, when I married your father, I thought I was marrying a, a damn Greek God, and as it turned out, I married a goddamn Greek. <laughs> and, and here's what would happen to me as a little kid. I would go to him and I would go, damn just came across and I loved words. This word that I just came across, here's the word. And he would go and he would 
ruffle up and he didn't have a Greek accent. He spoke seven languages and he didn't have a Greek accent when he spoke English, but he would put on a Greek accent and go, this is a Greek word. It, it has a Greek meaning and a Greek origin. Go look it up. And so I immediately thought of that and I thought about how that sensitized me to a cultural thing that was happening with him, right? That the important thing for him was for me to actually look it up myself and learn in that way. I had to learn that the hard way from him. You had to learn it the hard way from your, what was he? The, the... Well, but you're absolutely right because he was not being, being, being difficult or anything. He no. may have had a very difficult night, you know, and he was yeah. just trying to catch up on his sleep while the ship was still arriving in the port. He still had another half an hour before we would start the mooring operation, which I look back, I would probably do the same thing. But all I'm trying to, to, to say look at the, the look at the social interaction and where it yeah. just takes you because when there is no curiosity conversation you can just forget about all these uh, these 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 it's very meaningful uh, dialogues um, yes but the other thing now i'm moving on to something else when you talk about psychological confidence there's two things actually one is that i although i don't believe in the idea of gender uh, diversity I have seen it work, <coughs> and I've seen it work really well when you have one female who comes on board as an inspector and asks, starts to ask questions from you. Mm -hmm. And you find yourself in a completely different conversation. Because, first of all, you know, there's this idea of there's a, there's, there's a female visitor on board and you better behave yourself. You, you have to comb your hair, you have to present yourself much better. You have to tidy up the place so that that in itself brings some level of uh, aura to the to the space. It, you know, you're you're much more uh, calm, composed. You're less on the defensive side. You're less you you don't perceive that woman as a threat. Um, partly also because of 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 how of my limited experience with 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 inspectors, women inspectors, that they're more open. They're more 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 empathetic in the way they approach. Um, they they conduct their inspection. So I've always felt that okay, you know, there's very there's still a long way to go where the 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 industry will experience any sort of uh, cognitive diversity. But even where we have seen gender diversity, I have seen beautiful beautiful results because it really instills a, a, a great deal of confidence in you as, as a person. Uh, that yes, I'm. Uh, it's okay to to say certain things which I would probably not say to to a male inspector. Um, so that's that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing, I, as you were talking, and it struck me was that perhaps, perhaps you're right, but because my my understanding of confidence, when I go back to to my language, is as I said, atmavishwas, which is which is if you literally translate it in English, it becomes self confidence. But you're not talking about self confidence here. You're talking about confidence that is that is that is created by 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 external conditions partly at least you know through leadership and other social influences so i'm thinking the problem here is that you know we are probably talking the same thing but i'm talking about self confidence because that's the way my language describes confidence yes uh, we have a very in, very individualist notion of what confidence is so i think it's really brilliant that you bring up both these points. So two very important points. The second one being this this nested concept of confidence as a systemic a, a network of systemic influences, or confidence as an individual property. But 
back to the other piece about this, that your language and your culture approach confidence in a different way. This is something that we have to explore if we're going to make a diverse workplace. We've got to understand these differences. Now, going back to the first part of, of what you were talking about, about a female inspector or somebody who is given that authority, that, that power differential, and then an understanding that a female in that powerful situation will have more empathy and therefore is more approachable from the, from the perspective of empathy. That's huge because in the old days, what did we do when the, the typical inspector came on board? We buddied up, right? It was the manly buddy up kind of thing. Well, that doesn't work in this case. And now it's a reliance on empathy. <clears throat> but what does that empathy give to that inspector, to that female inspector? The empathy gives her the ability to ask questions very differently and get very different results. That's more information. So less information was really derived through the good old boy methodology, or if it was accumulated, often it was swept under the carpet because, oh, well, that's he's a good old boy, so I'm a good old boy, so I'm not gonna call him out on that. I might just talk to him on the side about it and that'll be the end of it. And learning stops, learning becomes a dead end. But in this other system where the approach is through empathy, my question to you is, is empathy something that is unique to women or can we teach empathy to others in the system? Absolutely, uh, it's a, such a good point. But even before we go into that area, I think uh, the, the problem in that sphere where you have a, a visitor coming on board as an inspector, as an auditor or is, is it's a it's a very classic equation of power versus knowledge because yes. and and they are very complementary extremely very complementary because what happens in these settings is that and i think it's it also partly relates to the, your your point is that uh, that you you can be an inspector with extensive experience extensive knowledge and but it can be very outdated it it yeah. and, or it can become very outdated very quickly the other thing is that you can be an inspector with with very little experience you might have just you know, become an inspector by by to the by virtue of of some competence and licensing, but but that doesn't mean that your your knowledge is in par with the person who you are who you are visiting who the system that you're auditing, and that can never be the case. So you have so you have knowledge at the one end without authority, and you have power on the other hand without without appreciation of the context. So in that situation, when you put an un and I don't have any data to back it up, but when you put somebody who has a natural empathy, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to, to create that equation between power and knowledge. You're trying to open up that dialogue. You're trying to, 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 to simple way to say that, hey, I don't know nothing about your work. I'm new to the setting. Would you be able to, to educate me better? Because through that conversation, both of you will come out much better. That inspector will no longer be an outdated person and that uh, uh, the, the the ship captain will no longer be feel like you know these he or she has been grilled uh, with some predetermined questions and 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 questionnaires. So but so you yes, you, uh, you've reestablished the entire idea around investigation quite brilliantly, right? So when we think about it, we've set ourselves up with words like investigation and audit. We've set ourselves up for a critical review that may or may not include empathy, that may or may not include coaching, that may or may not include learning, right? 
we think that calling somebody out is learning, but it often isn't. Now, having said that, there are differences in our approaches culturally to this kind of review. And I think that the word review is much, much more powerful. So, for example, if I was getting a check ride as, a, as an aircraft commander in the Air Force or in the Coast Guard, having been in both, my expectation is that I would get a critique for the things that I did right and the things that I did wrong in the viewpoint of this individual. And then we would have a discussion about why the actions made sense to me at the time. This is a very important question. It's not simple compliance. It's more of an understanding of the systemic drivers, the systemic influences that exist inside this work environment. And it's in that moment that we get to learn. And I, I've got tons of examples, I'll share one. Um, we're being evaluated on this new process that we were doing in the C-130. When the engine would fail, we'd shut the engine down and then the prop would rotate backwards slowly, which indicates a failure of the prop brake, we think, maybe. The other possibility is it's complete disassociation of the front of the gearbox and the back of their gearbox, which also happened. And if, if the propeller spins up in that particular situation, you could end up in a very catastrophic situation where the propeller will depart the aircraft. So, which actually happened to me as well. So the, the steps that they wanted us to do were to protect the gearbox with the assumption that the problem was related to uh, a failed prop brake, but we didn't know that. So what, what they asked us to do was to slow the airplane down until the prop rotation stopped. Now, when a prop goes into feather, it goes slightly in a negative direction, which drives it to, to rotate slowly backwards. But the gears, the smallest gear is huge in a C-130, the sun gear. I mean, the planetary gear is huge. And rotating that thing backwards, even in the absence of oil slowly, is not a big deal. Plus, here's what they're asking us to do. Slow the airplane down till the prop stops moving. Speed the airplane up till the prop starts moving. Fly in that range in between. So I get this emergency, engine shutdown emergency, and I shut the engine down and the evaluator pilot says, your prop's rotating backwards, what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna land the airplane. And he said, what about the procedure? I said, that's troubleshooting maintenance in the air. I don't know what's wrong with that gearbox. That airplane now has one engine that is an anchor. It is not producing power. It is dead weight. If it's rotating backwards slowly, the one thing I know is that the prop went into feather. That's good news. I'm not messing with this. I'm landing the airplane. What about the procedure? We'll talk about it on the ground because it's a stupid procedure, right? So the evaluator to use their power differential to say, you have failed this event, right? Entirely up to them to say that. I have the opportunity to then say, this is the way I feel about this procedure and this is the way I feel about the event based on my knowledge of the system. Do we wanna have that discussion? If there is enough psychological confidence in the system, we'll have that discussion. You know me pretty well by now, Nip, and we've known each other for a few years. You know what my position is on this. I'm pretty darn confident when it comes to speaking up about this stuff. And so I spoke up. And this questioned the procedure, not my reaction to it, because I was knowledgeable about the procedure. But that's an evaluative place where the 
in the evaluator did not feel threatened, right? So when I talk about this idea of confidence, and as I start to articulate it more and more, there's a responsibility on both sides to keep this from becoming personal, to keep this in a professional, keep this in a, in a logical approach to the problem that moves us toward one single goal, and that is learning, right? That's the important piece, and both sides need to be educated in that. And that's why I started off answering your question by saying we need to have the principles of operation first. So if our principles are, for example, do no further harm to the system or the people within the system, uh, if our principles are don't sacrifice learning or only sacrifice learning intentionally, then we, we move into a very different place in terms of how we relate to one another and how we relate to being evaluated. And I think it's, you know, there are many times that people called me out in my evaluations for things that they thought I should have done and I probably should have done, you know, and those became learning opportunities, but that's a coaching relationship, not a punishing relationship. And I think we have to remember that we've got a choice. We can either punish or we can learn, but we can't do both. And so we need to live in that place. And that ties it back to that idea of principles once again. Beautiful discussion. Is there anything you would like to say uh, to some of this conversation? Yeah, I, I actually wouldn't. I, I think that every time we have a discussion, one of the wonderful qualities that you have is to bring out the best in the conversation. So my hat's off to you and thank you for, uh, for a really nice, enjoyable podcast. What did you think? I noticed something phenomenal in this conversation. How my idea about confidence was so rooted in individualism and how through this conversation, Ivan helped me understand the social dimension of confidence. Well, I only discovered it during the podcast. Wow. Now there's one thing you want to learn you want to really take away from this podcast, which is Ivan's work on learning review, which is a fundamental shift in the way we conduct tax investigations. I would really encourage you to read his work. It's very readily available, but I've also included a link in this podcast. I think you will love it. So learning review is a process designed to improve how large and small organizations respond to accidents and incidents. And I would really encourage you to, to have a look at it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website, novellas.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter or my personal website, nipinanand.com. Thank you for listening. 